Luke 11, page 869, beginning at verse 14. Now he, that is Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person and passes through waterless places, seeking rest and finding none, it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts of which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This is God's word. In contemporary Western culture, the consumer is very definitely king. It's true to say that that's true in some parts of the West more than others. A menu in a restaurant in the United States, for example, actually uh, tells you what you can have, uh, and all those things are available, and you can have them uh, whatever way you want. You can have some bits and whatever, and you can mix and match as you like. And it's all served with a smile. Burger King famously trade on this idea. Their philosophy is, have it your way. And their, their, their pitch is this. You have the right to have what you want exactly when you want it. Because on the menu of life, you are today's special. And tomorrow's. And the day after that. And, well, you get the drift. Yes, that's right. We may be king. But you, my friend, are the almighty ruler. Now, we know, actually, anybody that has lived in the UK for any length of time, that that sort of thing only really works in the United States. Over here, any requests in a, in a restaurant that deviate from the menu are greeted with a look of disbelief and the shaken head of impossibility. But Burger King have tapped into how we think it should be. And we like this. We are consumers, and our culture has trained us to think this way, and we like it that way. We think we should have whatever we want whenever we want it. And obviously, in a culture like this, then, a high value is placed on choice. Uh, we want to have options. We don't want to feel restricted in any way. We, we work this out, then, in all kinds of different ways in our lives. We don't accept invitations to parties too quickly in case we get a better offer. We don't commit to relationships in case there's someone better around the next corner. We're reluctant, actually, to commit to anything for fear of missing out elsewhere. Google... The God of Open Options, and you'll get Barry Cooper's uh, article on that very issue. 
But because this is the cultural air that we breathe, we find what Jesus says this morning in this passage very hard. Because you see, he's saying it's decision time. We need to choose. And it's just as it is with any kind of choice, by choosing one option, we're ruling out others. We're ruling out the alternatives. But we do need to decide. And the issue is, will we follow Jesus with all of our hearts or will we not? Will we follow Jesus on the terms that he lays out or will we not? That's the issue before us this morning. And it's all precipitated by this miracle that we see in verse 14 with this mute man. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. Now, if you've been with us, if you're just here for the first time this morning, we've been working through all of Luke's gospel, pretty much every verse all the way from the beginning. Uh, We're at Sermon 39 now in 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 the series. And what we've seen again and again and again, as Luke has recorded for us, Uh, in the miracles that Jesus does, healing the sick, the broken, and the possessed. And I think up to this point, there have been 10 of these sorts of miracles, four of which have been exorcisms, not unlike this. What Luke has been giving us is Jesus demonstrating his supernatural power to turn back the effects of sin and brokenness and devastation in our world. You see, when the Son of God walked the earth, the forces of darkness assailed as they were against him, the enemies of God were brushed aside, unable to stand against his power and his might. And Luke has placed this miracle where he has in order to highlight now this need to decide how we will respond to this man. So for several weeks, we've heard him given very demanding instructions. From uh, the the section in chapter 9 where he says to follow him will mean taking up your cross. Literally, it will mean walking the same cross-shaped path to the death of all your own desires that he went Well, he calls those who follow him to be his messengers, to proclaim his message to the ends of the earth, the message of peace with God available in Jesus Christ. He calls his followers to be neighbors, that is, those who embrace the cost of loving those who are not like them. And last week we saw that we were told if we will follow him to sit at his feet and to concern ourselves with what he says and the values of his kingdom, his name, as we set aside time to pray to him. And we've got to decide, is this man worth this kind of all-consuming devotion? It's a theme that has come up again and again and again in this section. And we're shown here that he's certainly powerful. That cannot be disputed. This man who hasn't spoken, well, we're not told how long it is he hasn't spoken for, but he is now visibly and audibly speaking. He is no longer mute. A miracle has happened. But how will this obvious display of power be received? Well, we're told 14, some people, probably those who knew this man and had known that he couldn't speak, marveled. But we've seen it again and again in the Gospels. People marvel, but that's where it stops. They go, wow, that's amazing. Oh, well, and off they go. They're impressed, but there's no more than that. Well, that's not what he wants. And we're not told what they do. We're not told whether this marveling led to them surrendering to Christ suspect it probably did. But what we do discover is that there are some who go the other way completely. Verse 15. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Beelzebul literally means the Lord of the flies. It was a popular name for Satan, the devil himself. Now we'll hear what he says to those who demand a sign next week, Lord willing. But what we have here 
are some who, having been confronted with this unquestionable, incontrovertible evidence of the power of Jesus Christ, refuse to acknowledge him. Instead, they attribute what he's doing to the devil. Yes, they say, yes, of course he's done a miracle, but he's only doing that because he's in league with the devil. He's, in, in, he's doing it in the power of the, the Lord of the flies. This is a huge blasphemy. But unbelief loves to work like this. Unbelief will go to any length, actually, to argue that black is white. Now, we might think, having read through Luke's gospel, that this is an absurd thing to say. We see Jesus doing miracles, and they're not in any way wicked. It seems absurd that somebody could attribute to what Jesus is doing any sense of wickedness. He's been healing those who have been debilitated with chronic diseases for years, transforming their lives. How is that wicked? Raising the widow's dead son, bringing joy to a grieving family, you remember in chapter 7. How is that in any way wicked? In every case, the miracles that Jesus performs, and these miracles you remember in the Gospels are always not just bringing joy to the people who experience them, but they're pointing us, the reader, to the glory of what life will be like in the new creation, a place where these illnesses and sicknesses and death will not be any longer. But in every case, all the miracles are good, and they're life-giving. How could anyone, we think, attribute to the uh, to Jesus, the power of the evil one. Well, listen to the late Christopher Hitchens, well-known atheist who wrote the author, uh, who wrote the book "God Is Not Great," and um, his quote comes before his death in 2011. Hitchens spent time debating advocates of all religions, uh, but during a series of debates with a Christian pastor, he said this: "It is coercive, irrational, intolerant, and invested in ignorance. Christianity is a wicked cult." It is high time we left it behind. Confronted with the biblical evidence, Hitchens describes the work of Jesus Christ as wicked and evil. So it's very contemporary. You see this group in verse 15, they would have fit right in today at the Times Literary Department or at Vanity Fair magazine or in the philosophy department of one of our celebrated universities. So what does Jesus do? Well, this group and... We're not told who they are, but they were likely the religious establishment who opposed and dogged Jesus really all the way to his death. They're so insulting. This is such a blasphemous and insulting thing to do, to say to the Son of God that he is in league with the devil. He could quite reasonably have just turned away and left them to it, left them in their sin to perish. But he doesn't do that. You see, because of his great love, he won't just leave them to, do, to, to perish. He won't let them go their own way. Instead, he confronts them. No, it's not cozy. He is direct. I think you can see that. But this is a great mercy. They've just accused him of terrible things. This is incredibly merciful that he will come and condescend to speak to them. And he's doing this to try and wake them up to themselves. And in doing that, he, do, he does two things. He exposes their reasoning and he extends a warning. Two points this morning. Number one, he exposes their reasoning. Verses 17 to 22. Have a think about what you're saying, says Jesus. If I'm supposed to be performing miracles by the power of Satan, that is, first of all, illogical. Illogical, 17 and 18. But he, knowing their thoughts, interesting, isn't it? He knows their thoughts. They haven't said this. He knows what they're thinking. 
He said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. What's Jesus just been doing? He's been using his power to cast Satan out. How then could it possibly be that he is in league with the one that he's defeating? See, no kingdom, no house, no army, no team, no business can survive an internal conflict. Some may be able to limp along for a while, but in the end, they'll fall apart. Think about the England cricket team um, and uh, Kevin Peterson, their star batsman. Uh, he's, he's, uh, his autobiography has just come out recently, and it has lifted the lid on the situation in the English cricket dressing room. There were factions and cliques and distrust and fake Twitter accounts attacking Kevin Peterson. It's no surprise that if there's that level of internal disconnect and discontent, they were losing matches. A divided household always eventually falls. And the idea, Jesus says, that he is using Satan's power, that is, Satan is actually fighting against himself, well, that would be the most ridiculous way for Satan to shoot himself in the foot. It's illogical to suggest that. Not just illogical, it's also inconsistent. Verse 19, inconsistent. Apparently, you see, there were others in the Jewish community who could perform exorcisms. And the historians tell us that when they did this, it was credited to them as a work of God. It was seen to be a work of God. And Jesus then asks, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. So when the Jewish contemporaries of these guys cast out demons, this was a good thing, done in the power of God. But when Jesus does it, they say it's the work of the devil. Now, how does that work? No, Jesus is saying, you can't have it both ways. This is inconsistent. So Jesus goes after the faulty reasoning of this group of opponents. Their charges, he's saying, are illogical and they're inconsistent. But what we need to see all these years later is that actually that is true of any attempt to deny the work of God in our world. See, because God is the one who made us, we can't begin even to reason him out of existence without using the minds that he gave us. We can't slander his name without using the tongues that he made. We can't shake an angry fist at him without using the hands that he so intricately formed. Any attack on God by one that he made is self-refuting. Because we can actually only use or actually abuse the gifts and abilities that he has given us to make the very attack that we're making. Someone once perceptively said, man must sit on God's lap in order to slap his face. Ricky Gervais, the... Uh, uh, would we call him a comedian? <laughs> Early Ricky Gervais, quite funny. Not so much. He made this point unwittingly. He's a very outspoken atheist. He made this point unwittingly when in an interview he talked about being an atheist and he was very kind of vociferous about it. Later on in the interview, he, he, ex he expressed exasperation with the blasphemous. He said, oh my God. And then he looked at the camera, directly into the camera with a bit of a cheeky smile, that awful cheeky smile that he does. Um, and he said, yeah, I can still say that as an atheist, I know. Well, of course you can't. It's illogical and it's inconsistent. So the question is, well, how did Jesus do this then? 
How did he perform this miracle? Verse 20, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The finger of God. He's borrowing a phrase there that would have taken these guys' minds back to Exodus chapter 8, where Pharaoh's magicians used that very same phrase to warn that the plagues that they were experiencing were as a result of God's power. Jesus is saying, I have the same power as that. The same power to deliver and I can do it with the same ease. The only conclusion we're left with is that the mute man has been touched by the very finger of God and he has been delivered from the power of Satan. And that is a clear sign that this Jesus, who is before these people and who stands before all of us now in Scripture, is God's King who is bringing in God's kingdom. It is that we hear him say, look, all this stuff that I've been saying about myself is true. All of the things that you've seen are pointing to this reality. I am God's king who is bringing in his kingdom. Satan is powerful. Verse 21, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. Strong man and he's fully armed. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Satan is strong. And his, his possessions here in this illustration that he's guarding and hoarding are people, human souls. But the fact that Jesus delivered the mute man as he did with such great ease just a moment or two earlier, as he drew him out, as it were, from the clutches of Satan, proves Not just that Jesus is not on Satan's side, but he's also more powerful than him. We shouldn't muck about with Satan. We've just had Halloween where lots of people thought it was a great laugh to dress up as the devil or to laugh along with the whole thing, uh, to, to kind of make a mockery of the powers of darkness, as it were. Why Christians would do this is beyond me. Satan's on the other team. We don't laugh along with him. He's our enemy. But he's also stronger than any of us. That's why we can't resist temptation. Why do you think it is that we do things that we don't really want to do? Things that we know are wrong. Why do you think it is that we can't break addictions when they take hold of us? Because Satan is stronger than us. His powers are beyond our human powers. And to mess about with him or to play that down or laugh off the seriousness of supernatural evil is really dangerous. But here's the point. Jesus is more powerful And praise God that there is one who is more powerful and stronger than Satan. And Jesus here is giving us a glimpse of what his finished work will complete. He's on his way to the cross in Jerusalem, where as he breathes his last, hanging on the cross, having borne all of the judgment of God at our sin, in our place, he hangs there, and as he breathes his last, The Apostle Paul tells us that he disarms the devil and puts him to public shame. Jesus was hung there to all comers, looking on in abject weakness, and yet in that weakness he has destroyed the one who has the power over death. And from where we stand in history this morning, as we look back, we have more than that miracle, more than the healing of the mute man to go on. We look back to the empty cross and the empty tomb that stand forever 
forever as the proof that Satan's power has been defeated by Jesus Christ. When the Son sets you free, John says, you are free indeed. Why? Because he is more powerful than all the powers of hell combined. Confronting these critics, Jesus exposes their reasoning. It's illogical and inconsistent. He is God's king bringing in God's kingdom in power. Now, there are consequences then associated with this reality. So Jesus then secondly extends a warning. Verses 23 to 26. He extends a warning. Some of the gathered crowd were critical, but there are others who weren't sure, that marveled, or looking, trying to make their minds up. And in that group, perhaps there were some who were a bit less extreme and said, well, hang on a minute, I don't think that's really, I wouldn't attribute that to Satan. Perhaps they were um, a bit more English, a bit more measured. Well, I'm not altogether sure. They think, well, I'm not against Christ. I'm just not quite sure. Undecided. What Jesus then clarifies to people like that. Wouldn't say we're against Christ, but actually we keep him at a distance. Jesus clarifies. He says two things. Firstly, there's no neutrality. Verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. See, we said at the start, Jesus is forcing his hearers to decide. This is a decisive point. Is he the Christ, and will they follow? And he's saying here, look, There's no fence to sit on. There is no middle ground to occupy. There's no Switzerland, as it were, to move to. We're either for him or we're against him. We gather or we scatter, and to not gather is to scatter. See, you probably come, you might be one of these people this morning. I I come across people all the time who wouldn't say that they're against Jesus. He was a good man, they say. You can see the influence that he's had on Western culture. Uh, Surely it's a positive thing. And I would like to say, actually, I admire him. Those people may even go to church from time to time and speak warmly of him and even give generously to Christian endeavor. But this is always on their terms and only insofar as Christ doesn't really impinge too much on how they want to live their lives. They may even call themselves Christian. But it is a misnomer because there's no real sincerity about following Jesus Christ, the Christ who gives his name to the word Christian. Our prime minister has said this about himself. I'm a member of the Church of England, and I suspect a rather classic one. That is, not that regular in attendance and a bit vague on some parts of the faith. For vague read, not bothered. But Jesus says, if you're not completely for me, you're actually against me. He's not saying you need to be perfect. None of us are perfect this side of glory. The gospel tells us that the church of Jesus Christ is a hospital for sinners rather than a museum for saints. But he is saying that you're either in or you're not. You can't sit on the fence. There's no neutrality. J.C. Ryle, a bishop of the same Church of England that our prime minister speaks about from a different generation, says this, let it be the settled determination of our minds that we will serve Christ with all our hearts if we serve him at all. Let there be no reserve, no compromise, no half-heartedness. Why does he say that? Because there can't be. That's the first part of Jesus' warning. But because there is no third option, 
Jesus continues and he says this means that there must also be no apathy. No apathy. That's verses 24 to 26. No neutrality, no apathy. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person and passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil in itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Tricky verses. (laughs) Um, I won't surprise you to say that there's some mystery amongst commentators around what these verses actually mean. It can't be warning about the possible effect of casting out demons. If it was, it would have been better for Jesus not to have done that in the first place, if the person ultimately ends up worse off afterwards. But I think the difficulties come when we see what he says here in an individualistic sense. See, Jesus' first audience would have included Israel's religious leaders, and he was warning them here in regard to Israel as a nation. So Israel... As a nation, a bit like this demon-possessed person, had seen some reform in their history, and in that sense, they were cleansed. But Jesus is saying that unless the very living presence of God comes to dwell in their midst, Israel remained vulnerable to further demonic attack. Jesus has come as God's Messiah, the living embodiment of God's rescue for Israel. And he's saying, look, unless Israel turned from their terrible slander of him, saying he's in league with the devil, wickedness will return in a way that was far worse than before. Israel as a nation must decide. There must be no apathy. Will they acknowledge and follow the Christ or will they not? It is to the nation of Israel, but there is application that comes to us. The principle still applies in the same way. When we see the works of God in the Bible as they are revealed to us. And when we hear the warning that we are either for Jesus or against him, and when we recognize that no amount of self-willed external moral reform, like, like what Israel was trying to do as a nation, will do any good, but rather leave us open to deeper spiritual problems, we see that we must surrender wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ in order to receive his salvation and be caught up in the renewing work of his Holy Spirit. You see, only the transforming power of God's Holy Spirit at work in us can replace our lust with purity, can replace our anger with patience, our greed with contentment, and our addictions with zeal for the glory of God. Only God's Spirit can do that because only he is powerful enough to do that. Which is why what Jesus says at the end is so important. Now, I imagine this scene was pretty heavy. Um, he hasn't, wasn't there, wasn't much banter around as Jesus, uh, these people are saying, hey, you're in league with the devil, and he's saying, hey, you're idiots. Uh, hang on a second, this is going to get really bad if you don't do something about it. He's laid it on the line in a pretty major way. Listen, you need to decide. I'm not sure anybody would have been smiling. Tension. But then we have this woman in the crowd who speaks up. As he said these things, verse 27, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the woman that bore you and the breasts of which you nursed. But he then said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Submission to Jesus and his word is the way to blessing. The woman was overcome with all that she saw in Jesus, that she said, oh, this man's mom must be something else. To have a son like this, she must have been hugely blessed by God. 
And Jesus doesn't disagree, do you notice? Mary was blessed as the mother of God the Son. We saw that right at the start of Luke's gospel. We mustn't let the uh, Roman Catholic overemphasis on Mary detract from her exalted place as the bearer of the Christ. What a blessing to nurse and care for Jesus. But there is a higher blessing, he says. A higher blessing than being mum to the Son of God, he says, yes. The blessing of hearing God's word and keeping it. Receiving it into your heart, owning it for yourself, and then going and living it out. Because you see, it is in his word that we encounter the life-giving Christ. And it is through faith in him that we receive his life-changing Holy Spirit. The people God blesses are those who hear his word and keep it. And just as it was for his first hearers, so it is for us today. It is decision time. Decision time. Some of us need to turn from our sin and put our faith in Christ for the first time this morning. You can do that where you sit. Ask him to forgive your sins and to receive you. And he will do that. Through Jesus Christ, you can be fully forgiven and united to him. Others of us need to get off the fence that we think that we can sit on and realize that we can't fudge it with Jesus any longer. We need to decide to stop wasting our lives playing at being Christians. We need to refuse the half-hearted foot in the church, foot in the world kind of way of living and instead choose Christ and go hard after him with all that we are. We need to decide to do that. And all of us need to know that blessing, forgiveness, restoration, and new life are only found in Jesus, our mighty King. And complete surrender to Him is the key to knowing blessing now and blessing all the way into eternity. So as Jesus asks these people to decide, what's it going to be? Are you for Him or are you against Him? We need to hear that challenge and we need to respond. None of us can say, oh, I'll wait and see. We need to make our minds up. Let's pray together. Praise you, our Lord Jesus Christ, that you are God's King, demonstrating God's power in the miracles that you perform. And as we hear your voice this morning, we pray that we would respond in obedience, and that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would write these truths on our heart that we might leave here uh, longing to live in a way that is wholeheartedly committed to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.